Sensible Mama, and these are the Sensible Sessions. I've been so excited to film this podcast, but it's been one that's been kind of tricky to get on the books because it is with a guest who is also a very busy parent and also a published author and someone who has a very busy schedule, just like me. But we did finally get our calendars lined up, and I'm so excited to introduce you to my friend on the show today, whose name is Michael LeBourne. He is a very influential and outspoken voice in the Christian and deconstructing community. And if that word deconstructing is unfamiliar to you, don't worry, that is what we're going to completely unpack in this podcast today. Michael has become a very good friend of mine, but I really got to know him through TikTok of all things. Michael is someone who has been in ministry from a very young age. He has held down full-time internships and important positions within the church. He's led ministries across multiple churches and even across denominational lines. He's also worked with youth ministries, guiding young Christian minds into leadership themselves, and that's something we're going to really delve into in this podcast today. Uh, And eventually he went on to begin challenging church structures and writing books to challenge our generation to a more authentic expression of Christianity. And kind of the intersection of my life with Michael's is that I had the honor and the privilege to get to preview his most recent book called A Different Kind of Christian. And when I tell you that this book completely changed my view of my my faith in a lot of ways and my relationship towards the church. It was radical. Um, And so I wanted to bring him on today because I know that many of you um, have seen my testimony uh, video that I've put on YouTube. You've heard me talk about my faith journey. And I think a lot of you are going to resonate with the things that we're going to be speaking about today. I want to go ahead and apologize for the audio on this one. We are both two busy parents filming uh, in our own homes with our children and our dogs and whatever else around. So the audio quality isn't going to be as great as when I film uh, in my office with my studio all set up, but hopefully everything is still going to sound decent. So with that said, we're going to jump right on into the podcast and I'm going to introduce you to Michael right after a quick word from our sponsor, which is my business, thesensiblemama.com. The Sensible Mama is an online baby boutique for babies, toddlers, big kids, and moms. Our warehouse is located in Atlanta, Georgia, and we are mama-owned and mama-operated. Our website, thesensiblemama.com, is a place where you can find all of the best-known names in the industry researched by us. We are also the home of Limea Brand, which is a high-end line of diaper bags, sunglasses, and accessories designed by me with busy moms on the go in mind. While you're there, make sure you sign up for our Sensible Reward Program or apply for the affiliate program to start earning money either through cash back in the store or directly deposited to your bank account. Lastly, make sure you're following The Sensible Mama on Instagram to be ahead of the game for all store news and product launches. And with that said, let's get right back into today's content. Hi, Michael. (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me today. I'm so glad we were able to make the timing work on this because I know it's been it's been a while in the making. Absolutely. So, Michael, really quick before we dive into it, uh, I just named off some of your books. Can you tell the audience where they're able to find your books? Yeah, absolutely. You can um, find all of them on Amazon or any um, major book sellers online, such as Barnes and Noble, things like that. Um, you can also go directly to my website, which is just michaellaborn.com. So, Michael, do you mind if I share the story really quickly of how I found you? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so as you know, I was, um, I guess you don't know everything leading up to it, but I was, I've been in and out periodically across probably the last decade of various periods of questioning my faith, questioning my position with the church, questioning where I stand on things that I have been taught by the church and influential people in that church. And there's been a lot of things that as I've gotten older, I've started just kind of asking myself, do I believe this? And do I agree with it? And do I feel that these things that the church is doing reflect the Christ that I know in the Bible? So I've gone in and out of seasons of sometimes questioning my faith, sometimes sticking with my faith, but not feeling like I could be a member of the church during all of that. And um, and then other times being really, really strong back in my faith and loving the church that I've been in. It was during one of those periods of time where I was really grappling with a bunch of things 
related to churches that I was exploring here in the new state that I had just moved to. Um, when I came across your TikTok on my For You page, I was just sitting there scrolling late at night and this video comes up. And for you guys who are listening, if, if you don't follow Michael uh, on TikTok, he's kind of known for his very, very zoomed in um, camera angles. And it's just <laughs> a, a face, just a big face right there in your face. And he's looking at the at the camera. And what this TikTok says is when you ask God to make you more like him and that process makes you less like the church. And that TikTok stuck with me for a really long time because it really got to the heart of what I was grappling with as a Christian um, in the midst of having a really hard time finding a church home and being very hurt and devastated by things I was hearing in the churches that I was visiting. Um, and I, I just, you know, that expression, like what is living rent free in your head? Mm -hmm. For me, it was that TikTok video. Oh, wow. Um, and it was kind of through your first TikTok that was not, that wasn't your first TikTok, but the first of your TikToks that I saw that I really started to hear the word deconstruction and begin understanding that there were other people who were doing it and learning that there's a word for it, that other people are doing it, and that there's a whole community devoted to this. And so one of the things that I wanted to kind of ask you if you could help us with, Michael, because I have a feeling a lot of my followers aren't familiar with this word either. Could you tell us what deconstruction actually means and how, how you kind of define it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important question because for most people, uh, when they first encounter that terminology or that community, um, they really associate it with destruction. Uh, they picture bitter and angry Christians, you know, ripping down the church's orthodoxy or destroying the church's traditions. Um, but deconstruction really isn't destruction. Um, it's, it's, it's a careful unraveling of the church's story. It's exploring the history of the church and searching for something real at the center. Uh, so for a lot of people, Christianity and church has become a bunch of meaningless traditions and sermons meant to manipulate them into giving their time and their money. Um, but deconstruction, it means exploring your faith and peeling back all of that nonsense that's been built up around Jesus until we find him. I love that, like calling it deconstruction is not destruction, because I feel like I have been met with that myself. And that just a couple of times I've dipped my toe in that water, um, people just immediately become very defensive and act yep. like you're trying to destroy the church. Yeah, that's a very common response I get. So, and a question that I have, and, and I know we're going to, we're going to keep on circling back to what does deconstruction mean, but this is just before we really dive into it. I wanted to ask you, do you feel personally that the word deconstruction, deconstructionist, does it apply to you? Do you feel that you are deconstructing? Yes and no. Um, I, when I think about myself or define myself, I think about myself as an authentic Christian. Um, so my identity isn't really wrapped up in the fact that I'm asking questions or challenging the church. Um, but to be authentic in my faith, I have to be honest about the areas of my faith and the areas of the church where change is needed, where problems exist. So at this point in my life, being authentic means offering some strong criticisms of the church and some strong challenges to Christians. But I don't know what tomorrow holds. Um, so I, I, I do identify with that community. I do speak um, my, I lend my voice to uh, questions of deconstruction very often, um, and it's something that I have absolutely experienced in my life. Um, but if the church embraces authentic Christian living at some point, then my authentic faith might look a little different at that point. Could you say more about what you feel authentic Christian living is? Yeah, absolutely. I think that if we look at the scriptures, um, one of the things that we're going to see is that Jesus built a body that prioritized intimacy, that prioritized community, that prioritized people. Um, and for most of us, especially in the Western world, I can't speak for other parts of the world, but in the Western world, Christianity looks like production. It looks like ambition. It looks like platforms. It looks like developing something that speaks for us instead of, instead of developing something that makes room for people. Um, mm -hmm. So authentic Christianity for me is something that's organic, it's something that is entirely wrapped around the idea of building a community um, where we can experience Jesus and where we can experience each other. I love that. And what I just, I mean, obviously this would be the case, but I'm listening to you talk. And for my audience, I was really fortunate to get to 
um, preview Michael's most recent book. And these were the topics that were so prevalent in the book. It's, it was interesting when I started reading it, I still didn't know you all that well. And I was really expecting to read a book that was kind of like what we said a minute ago, um, really just like making a whole lot of challenges on theological issues. But your book, really the crux of it was just about loving each other. Mm-hmm. And you positioned it in a way that made it seem radical. That was the crazy part reading it. I was like, this is about love. And why does this feel radical to me? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a sad reality that, honestly, for the majority of Christians, that idea is radical. It really is. And I think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about this um, sort of analogy that my husband Charlie uses sometimes. He talks about cruise ship versus battleship Christians. Um, And so he's someone who has done a lot of mission work. He's traveled to India and Colombia and places like that. And he said that going on those mission trips really redefined for him what Christianity was supposed to be like. It's interesting hearing you talk because he used kind of the same language, but using it through the form of an analogy. He would say, here in America, we are cruise ship Christians. We're all on this boat and we're drinking, you know, our our beverages and we're eating our food and we're clinking our glasses and just kind of being, you know, towed along through the ocean, celebrating in the joys of of the privilege of knowing Christ. And that's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's that's great. But on this boat, we're pretty much only with each other. We're only with people who look like us and talk like us and believe like us. And what are we doing with that? What are, what are we doing with all of that intimacy and privilege that we have on this boat? And he would compare it to being a battleship Christian, which is going out, leaving the comfort of the boat and going out and rescuing people, like snatching them up and pulling them in. It's just such a different life than cruise ship Christianity. And as you talk, I feel like that I'm hearing that as like the authentic Christianity. Absolutely. That's a beautiful analogy. So as I know, I I could go on and on about what kind of led me to this kind of play. Cause, Cause I'm with you. Deconstructing doesn't quite feel right. It doesn't feel like the right word for me. Um, I feel like questioning is a good word for me. And it's a it's something that I've been doing across a lifetime. Uh, and a bunch of my followers have heard my testimony about that. I was wondering if you're comfortable, because I feel like people hearing more stories that they can identify with is always good. Uh, would you be willing to talk a little bit about what experiences led you towards this seeking of an authentic Christianity or deconstructing, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. And I love to talk about that because, um, once again, there are a lot of preconceived ideas when it comes to this community and this way of thinking. Um, You usually picture people who are angry, who are bitter, who have been hurt, or who have... A lot of times people will accuse you of saying, oh, you just didn't get the stage and so you're angry. That really wasn't my story. Um, I was a very stage-centered Christian, and by that I mean that I had opportunity um, I, I was celebrated in my church and I was celebrated in my area. We talked about that a little bit before about, you know, I had the opportunity to, uh, to pour into many ministries in many different churches. So I was a central leader, um, in many, in many different areas. And there, there were a lot of experiences that really did, led me down this direction, but there are two specific ones that I want to talk about. Um, the first would be, I, I was leading worship once. And while I was leading worship, I just felt inspired to share uh, just something with the church. Um, and in, it, during the course of that, it was just a little encouraging word for the body as we were worshiping. Um, but after a service, a woman came up to me and she told me, you know, I felt like God had more to say to us um, and you should have obeyed him. And uh, I wasn't really offended by it. People always have criticisms. It's fine. Um, but I, I just said to her as gently as I could. I said everything that was on my heart. If there was something else that God wanted to relay, you should have said it. Um, But later on that night, as I was sitting in my bed, I thought about that and I realized she couldn't have. Um, She didn't have a platform in that church. There's absolutely no way that she would have been allowed to just get up and speak to the body and address them and challenge them. She would not have been able to obey God. Um, And that really challenged me. 
and I started to look around at the people in my life. I had, I had spent a lot of time making disciples and raising Christian leaders, um, and I realized how many of them felt like they were in the shadows because despite the fact that they had been raised well, that they understood the word, that they had gifts, that they had the ability to pour into the body, because the right people hadn't seen them, they were not in a position where they could obey God, where they could honor God, where they could honor the gifts that God had given them. And that really challenged me. So I started to go to my leaders. I went to my local pastor and, and I told him, hey, there's some things that need to change. We are not respecting what the word of God says about his people. Um, and I spent a year of my life meeting with my pastor regularly, challenging the way that we did church, challenging the way we did ministry, challenging the way that we did community, um, and dreaming with him on what the church could be. And one of the things that really drove me to um, doing things as radically as I do them, because I've always pushed against the line. I've always challenged the church to grow. But what challenged me to be so radical about it was at one point, my pastor basically said to me, I love the things that you're dreaming about, but they're impractical and we can't do them. And that was the moment I decided, well, you know what? I'm going to do that. Hmm. <laughs> I, I, that must have really uh, like gobsmacked you in that moment to realize like, what do you mean? It just can't be done. If I'm thinking about it and I like God is giving me this, this blueprint in my head of how it could be done. Who are you to just say like, no, but it's impractical. Like it can't be done. Exactly. And I think that's something that um, I've encountered a lot um, in, in the years. Cause I've, I've been talking about this probably 10 years now. And um, one of the things that I've experienced over and over again is a lot of ministry leaders will tell me, yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you are talking about. I see that the word does paint a more community central um, body. I see what you're talking about in regards to leadership looking different and tithing looking different. I see all of these things, but they're just not doable. And I really struggle with the concept that we would believe that God is who he says he is, but that obeying him is not something that is worth pursuing. It doesn't make sense to me. Oh, oh my God. That's so good. Oh, that is, have you made a TikTok on that? Probably. <laughs> oh, that I have goosebumps. That's so good I, because it's true. Like what, why would God portray an image of what he wants his church to look like and not give us the ability to carry it out? Exactly. Do you feel like there was um, like some, here's what I hear is like gatekeeping kind of happening. That's what it sounds like from my end, but I didn't experience it. Did you ever feel like that was what it was? People being afraid of their power being challenged? Sometimes. Um, sometimes I think more often than not though, we have just created a system where our leaders are as dependent on this structure as the people who are in the pews. Um, for so many pastors, for so many ministry leaders, they spent their entire youth preparing to see their ambitions and their purpose fulfilled in this one way. And so the idea of telling them that God never designed them to be in that position, it threatens everything they understand about their value, everything they understand about their purpose. Um, it threatens their ability to even feel satisfied in their calling. Um, and, and for many of them, it's all they know how to do. So it, it threatens the stability of their families. So it, for some people, yeah, it is about power. But for many others, I think it's, it's really, it just comes down to fear. How am I ever going to satisfy my purpose if you take away the way that I've learned to satisfy my purpose? How will I feed my children? Mm. It's such a shame too. I mean, because you don't want to, as I'm sitting here mulling over that, it's like on the one hand, anybody can relate to that feeling. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's hard to judge that because I wonder, you know, even just as a business owner, other people come out with businesses who are similar to mine and I see them succeeding. And there is that part of me that's like, oh, oh, this feels uncomfy. You know, I like always wanting to be making sure that my business is never in jeopardy, that I'm always mm -hmm. able to provide for my family and for my employees who depend on me. So it's like on the one hand, you're like, you really can't blame them or judge them for feeling that way. It's a very human response. But on the other hand, they've been entrusted with this position and they should be able to put themselves aside and say like, this is for God's glory and God's community. And maybe I need to get out of the way and trust that God would, provide. Yeah. And I think that there are 
Um, I, I'm in that same boat. I, I don't judge them for it. I completely understand it. But I think about it in the same way that I think about police officers. There are some positions where um, there's more to the story and I don't have, I have a responsibility to take seriously what I do. And I think for a lot of leaders, ministry has become about two things. It has become about developing a vision and it's become about satisfying a purpose when ministry was never meant to do either one of those things. Um, ministry has never been about me being satisfied as a person. It's never been about me satisfying my vision or my desire or the way that I think that the world should be. It's always been about serving people. Um, so I, I'm, I'm on both camps. I'm on the camp that says I, I get the fear, and I, and I do. I really do. I was in ministry, and that was one of my biggest pursuits as a young person. So it hurt my feelings <laughs> when I realized that God's design didn't match up to what I wanted. It really hurt my feelings. Um, but on, on the other side of that same conversation, this, this matters so much. It matters so much that that can't be our reason for continuing to um, hold to structures that are harming people and not actually. And it's, it's not even just about abuse, um, but even, even in the fact that our structures keep people from seeing Jesus to the degree that they could, that in itself is harm. Yeah. And that right there is the thing that, that really hinges on a lot of my problems with the church is feeling like, and I don't mean problems with the church. I mean, just my personal sort of, when the church bumps up against me, it usually has to do with that, where I feel like the church is actually standing in between people and Jesus. Mm-hmm. What I, what I think is so interesting, you know, hearing your perspective, I'm so glad you're on here with me because a lot of my, my, my journey down this road of questioning and deconstruction is rooted in pain, not just pain that I experienced, but watching my friends experience pain. Um, and so it's difficult for me sometimes when I speak about what brought me down this road, because in some ways I am uh, a lot like that that stereotype that people have of of people who are deconstructing a lot of anger and resentment towards the church and it's it's nice to hear someone who like your journey began with such an altruistic um point of view which was that i want to and it makes sense honestly right now like as as the deconstructing community on tiktok and online is kind of having their own identity crisis and where your voice has been in the middle of all of that it's it's offering a clearer picture of that hearing that you're beginning the beginning of you being in deconstruction and authentic christianity began in elevating other people's voices yeah and i and that's always been very important to me um because it's something that i've always felt that jesus did um yeah don't get me wrong i know that jesus was the main event wherever he went he absolutely was but surrounding him was a group of young people who had no business being important. And just by being in close proximity to him, they changed the world. Um, and that's that's the kind of leader I want to be. Um, I want to be the kind of, uh, not just leader, the kind of man I want to be is the people who are around me go on to do greater things than they would have without me just because we know each other. And, I, and my intention is to be able to do that because I know them as well. I think that's the power of healthy community is that everyone finds themselves elevated. And so often it feels like in my experiences, that's not what's going on. It Growing up in Southern Baptist churches until I got old enough to pick my own churches, um, there was so much shame. Mm -hmm. There was just so much guilt and shame constantly. And for me, the first time started when I was, I had to be less than 10 years of age. And I had had this experience that my parents still have written down in a special like sacred box that they've kept since I was, um, I think that I was six years old when this happened. Um, in the middle of the night, I stopped breathing. And my parents didn't know this because I was sleeping in another room. But um, the next morning, like I, obviously I had survived it. Like I had stopped breathing and I had come back to. The next morning when my mom came into my room, I told her this story about how in the middle of the night, um, 
Jesus had come to my room. And my mom asked me to describe what Jesus looked like and what, what happened. And I told her that Jesus came into my room and it was him and another man with him. And they were both in white robes with purple sashes and long brown hair. And as I described this to her, I was telling her how Jesus had come and he had turned on this, this bright light all around me and had shown me all of these things and told me that he was going to see me again, but not right now. And my mom, my mom sort of blinked her eyes a few times and she was like, well, Amber, what happened next? And I said, I was back in my bed and my chest was tight. And she said, what do you mean? And I clutched my chest and I started breathing like I was hyperventilating. And like I had my, my one hand around my throat and just breathing in and out really heavily. And that was when my mom realized that she figured I had probably stopped breathing in the night. And that moment was when my breath came back and I started breathing again. And this was a really important moment for me and my family. And I, from that day, I had all, I just always had a very, very close walking step-by-step relationship with Christ, even such that I was allowed to get baptized much earlier than most kids in my church were able to be because my pastor sat down and did this interview with me and he was like, she gets it. She understands salvation. We're going to let her get baptized. Um, so then when we moved, as I got a little bit older, we found a new church and I was in Sunday school one morning and I told this story that was so deeply intimate and personal to me. And my Sunday school teacher told me that that wasn't Jesus that I saw. That was a demon. Oh, wow. And that this demon had taken possession of my body and that I needed to confess and repent and potentially be exercised. Lots of turn. (laughs) Yeah. And she went on to, it very much frightened me because she made it sound like she was going to be contacting um, the pastor about this. And I was just absolutely terrified. And it was a moment, you know, looking back, I don't, I used to have a lot of anger at that Sunday school teacher. I don't anymore. I think that in that moment, she thought she was being helpful. I don't think she meant to do as much harm as she did, but she really, she robbed me of such a special, beautiful experience that I had had that I believed was true. I believed I had experienced Jesus. And she took that and she made it something so dark and so ugly. And I never, ever forgot it. I'm sorry that happened. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I am too. And I think it just, it comes down to like that, that just that shame based kind of experience that Mm -hmm. a lot of us have had growing up in the church. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess this kind of is a segue into another question that I wanted to ask you, you know, for me that happened so young, right. And I went on through my church, went into my, my youth ministry and there were lots of problems in my youth ministry that everyone was kind of overlooking. And so one thing that was a little bit interesting to me is I've kind of learned more about your journey is that you, you worked a lot with youth in, um, in the churches that you worked in. And I've always, I told you this uh, offline that some of your, some of your videos that I like the most are the ones where you're kind of talking about what that was like working with youth in a church where you had some influence, but not enough to be influential in the way that you wanted to be kind of going back to this, like people gatekeeping and standing in the way of you doing the things you wanted to do. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experiences that you had specifically working with youth and how you feel that the way youth are kind of being indoctrinated might be having an effect on whether, whether Christians are living authentically in their faith or not. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was in youth ministry 10 or, 10 or 11 years um, in various roles. Um, I spent time just as a small group leader. Um, I did an internship at the church where my primary role was to help run the youth group. Um, and I got into youth ministry very young. I was 15 years old when I took my first small group uh, and became um, a part of the adult leadership team for the youth group. Um, which is obnoxiously young and was not a good choice on their part. It happened to work out, but it was not a good choice. Um, (laughs) But it did allow me to approach ministry very differently than many of the other leaders around me. Um, And I say that because 
they where they did lead, I actually got to know students. Um, I developed real relationships with many of them. I got to know their families. I spent time with their parents. They spent time um, with my mother. We we spent time in community. Um, because I was so young, I approached ministry as an opportunity for community rather than an opportunity to prop myself up above them. Um, and that set the stage really for the rest of my life. Um, so I'm glad it happened, even though I, I do maintain that it was a mistake to put someone in, in ministry at 15. Um, but one of the things that I really experienced while in youth ministry is that while I was developing real intimate community and setting a an atmosphere of that real intimate community within the youth group for the majority of the people there. Um, they were there to experience being led, being told what to believe, being told what to know about themselves, being told who they were, being told what they were allowed to pursue, what ambitions were holy and which ambitions were unholy um, to, to the degree where, to be honest, it was almost a replacement for parenting where often young people were directed um, toward goals and visions that youth pastors and youth leaders felt they should have for their lives. Um, and many of them, to be honest, were, were not correct and people were harmed in that. And I've talked about, I've talked about the way that um, relationships work in youth groups and things of that nature too. My, my major takeaway from my time in youth ministry is the fact that it, as young people, um, we are setting the stage for the way they do Christianity as adults. Um, and for the majority of youth ministries that I've been a part of and the majority of the youth ministries that I've seen represented by the people who respond to those videos and, and those conversations that I have, um, youth ministry is not being used to foster Christian community. It's being used to foster an atmosphere of compliance among Christians. Um, and that absolutely directly turns into passive Christianity in adults. For me, that that whole concept, I, I felt it in my soul <laughs> because it's it reminds me so much of my upbringing in youth ministries in my church is that everyone had great intentions. Everyone, you know, really felt like they were doing the best that they could. But I do remember a lot of experiences feeling more like comply do do as we say and don't ask questions yep absolutely um and honestly even the way that we are taught as youth leaders to preach or to lead small groups is entirely about teaching kids to listen to us and to trust our voices um i remember um we did a class on how to preach and i remember them saying you're um your students are going to remember one thing. So give them four to five points and have the first four points not matter and have the last point be the thing that, that you want them to walk home with. And um, looking back on that, that is incredibly devastating that we actually approach ministry in a way uh, that said we should teach our leaders how to effectively manipulate people. Ooh. Can you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think about um, the way we did, the way we did small groups, the way we did um, home groups, the way we did the way we did everything. Honestly, and this directly mirrors the way we do adult church, but in youth ministries and children's ministries, we really lay a foundation for this, um, where everything that other leaders are added to, um, every element of ministry that exists um, exists to complement the one thing that matters. So, some churches that's the sermon, some churches that's the prophetic ministry, some churches. That's the mission work. Every church has a different vision. Um, but in most churches in America, every type of service you can do, every type of ministry you can do is directly designed to benefit the vision of the church, to directly benefit the gifts that your lead pastor brings to the table. Um, and that's something that we were taught to do as leaders. We, we do small groups where we, we say that we're pouring into your life, we're getting to know you, we're diving into real relationship with you, but it's really about steering you to grasp the one concept the pastor was talking about, and that's the goal, getting you to accept this concept. It's not actually to know you, which once again, I'm confident everyone's intentions are good. I'm confident manipulation is not the primary goal in most people's minds, but it's what we're doing whenever we make compliance more important than community. Mm. 
That's a very interesting kind of peek behind the curtain because I, I never knew that, that there was this cohesive sort of everyone working towards the same goal, which you would think the goal is like getting everyone to know Christ more authentically, but to know that there's actually, there's like these little sort of other inferior goals to Christ, but those are the goals that everyone is actively pursuing together. For sure. And, and, and in everyone's mind, the goal is to get people to know Christ. I'm definitely not saying that the youth pastors are all monsters in the dark that are actually just trying to lead you away from Jesus, anything like that. The goal in their minds is to know Christ. But um, I love to talk about this, you know, in a biblical model of Christianity, everyone is uniquely gifted by the spirit of God um, in whatever way he wants to give them. And then unity and harmony and order happen as everybody lives out the unique gift that the spirit of God gave them. Um, but structure in the way that the church has built it means a leadership team developing a vision for the church and then structuring all types of service to lead the church in that direction. Um, so some churches, everything is about leading us towards a prophetic vision. Some churches, everything is about leading us towards starting more churches. Every, every church has their own vision. And although, and, and although they make room for your gifts, they make room for your gifts to complement that vision. Um, so their goal is still Jesus, but it's not if that makes sense. Yeah, it's very interesting because as you're saying that, speaking about gifts, and you're right, that is exactly the picture that the Bible paints. I was in my 20s before I ever, like that was when I started, I finally, I read the Bible for myself, cover to cover. It was the first time that I found, like located scripture about spiritual gifts. And I had never heard this ever discussed in any church I had been in. And I don't know if maybe this was just the Southern kind of Baptist churches that I grew up in. Maybe they don't really um, emphasize gifts of the spirit, but I found it really interesting that this had never been something that was taught, never something that to me, I spent weeks pouring through like the spiritual gift surveys that you can do online, trying to determine what my spiritual gifts were. And once I realized what they are, I thought, oh my gosh, there, there! I could really harness these gifts because I agree with them. I agree this is exactly the gifts that I have. I could do amazing things with this. Why did no one ever kind of help me foster these gifts? Mm. And it, it kind of makes me circle back to your very first story where you realize this woman wouldn't have been equipped to share the thing that was on her heart that maybe the Holy Spirit was putting there because no one was fostering the gifts of other people in the church and making sure yep. that people with certain gifts are getting opportunities to share those. Yeah. Because, uh, because the primary goal is the cohesiveness of the service as opposed to um, actually developing something together. Wow. Uh, it, that's I'm having like a mind blow moment. <laughs> I'm serious because I mean, you would think, even in corporate America, like how many different surveys and uh, courses and certificates can you get in uh, like teaching people how to identify their strengths and weaknesses before you hire them, you know, or excuse me, like, I guess what I mean is there are people whose entire job, their entire career is vetting out people to hire and they give you all of these assessments to identify mm -hmm. these strengths and weaknesses. And then once you get into the organization, you are expected to bring those strengths to the table. Mm -hmm. And often there are like continuing education opportunities and whatnot to help you refine those strengths. So even in corporate America, we understand identifying strengths and strategically putting people in positions that, that play to those strengths. And we're not doing it in the church. Excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that really drove me over the edge personally is that once again Jesus designed a bride where every part is in, is expected to contribute uh, and and that's I think that's the most important thing to talk about when we discuss the nature of the church is that Jesus designed the church to be a body and we say that all the time but we really don't discuss what it means as a body we are all individual parts that are connected together and if any individual part is not playing its part then the body in some way is harmed I remember once um, my pastor, when we were having these long conversations about the nature of the church, he asked me, he's like, Michael, do you think that this church is healthy? 
And what I told him is something that has really stuck with me since is I told him, if we have incredible leaders who are representing Jesus incredibly well, but 90% of the church is not living out their purpose, a body where only 10% does its work, even if it's the important parts, is dead. Um, and that's the problem that we have is that we have fostered an atmosphere where most of the body is dead. And then we're trying to pretend like it's still alive. I, I love that because it really is how it feels. I the, the word that I use often when I talk about churches that I have been visiting over the last maybe five years, I left it. I had finally found the most perfect church home back in Memphis. It was, it was gospel focused. The spirit was there in everything that we did. It did outreach and ministry, local outreach and global outreach. It was diverse. It was, it was just everything that I believed a church was supposed to be. And when I left that church, to move here to Georgia, I was devastated. It was the one thing about leaving my home that I was like the most upset about. Um, and so I got here and I was constantly looking for a church that was like that one. Um, yes. And I could never find it. And I found that most of the churches that I visited, it took only one or two sermons of visiting before I heard some kind of something that I felt was either out of step with the gospel or was political, um, which I'm not saying that you can't speak about politics in church, but it didn't take long to really recognize quickly um, churches that were basically just being an arm of a political movement, which was very disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. Um or was hearing actual hate speech from the pulpit. And when I would find a church that didn't have any of that going on, the best I could say about that church was that it was just lifeless. That's frustrating. Yeah, and it wasn't, there would be a beautiful ministry, a beautiful sermon, great music, like everything would be great you know, kind of like what you said from the stage back, like everyone who was on the stage was on and doing great, but then you're sitting in the pews and you feel like everyone around you is just not, it's just lifeless almost. And I, again, this might've just been my own experience in these churches that I visited where I live, but I never could reestablish that feeling of the Holy spirit, just like whooshing through the church. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of speaks to what you're saying is like, even if 10% of the church is operating at its peak, if the other 90% is just there cruise shipping through it because they're not being fed, then, then it, then yeah, the church is not living. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I, I want to talk about that for a second, if it's okay, this, the concept of being fed. Um, I used to always hear pastors complain when people would leave a church because they felt they weren't being fed. And um, they would always say, well, you should be reading the Bible on your own and doing these things. And yet they're right about that. But one of the most important things that I've realized that I wish I had realized back when I had influence in the church was it's not just about the quality of the teaching that I'm receiving. It's about the opportunity to actually be engaged in the body. For far too many people, they have been made by God to do something that the body that they're a part of is not interested in them doing. Um, and that that leaves you somewhere dying and alone and hurt and rejected. Um, in, in the same way that we talked about earlier, how so many pastors don't want to embrace uh, organic or, or authentic Christianity because it will f- cause them to not know how to feel their purpose being satisfied. That's how most Christians feel. They were made to do something that the church doesn't make room for them to do. And they're being told that if they're good Christians, they will be okay with that and they won't complain. Um, And that leaves a lot of people not only feeling as if their churches aren't authentic, but feeling as if they really don't have the ability to be as engaged as they'd like to be. And a lot of people give up and become passive just because it's kind of what they're being told to do. Whereas a living body, a liver cell doesn't need to be told by the heart how to work. It's a liver cell. It knows what it's doing. 
um, where God, Jesus designed the body to work the exact same way. We were designed to have individual gifting from the spirit of God and to be uniquely qualified to live out our individual purpose. And if we are left with freedom to do that, our individual purposes will be harmonious and complementary, and it will develop something that is ultimately more beautiful than if a particularly anointed part of the body decides so everyone else can contribute. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> like So much. Yes. So Michael, like, I guess if you were to, this is the last question that I kind of wanted to go over today. Cause I, I want to, I want to leave this podcast with a, you know, talking about hope, right? Mm-hmm. Because I see so much good and I know you do too, such a good and bright future that is possible. And this is what you spent a lot of time talking about in your book, which um, I just hope at the end of this, we'll, we'll remind people how to get a hold of it. But the, the book, A Different Kind of Christian, you really laid out a picture of what the church could look like if we start doing it right. And so I was wondering if you could kind of say like in 20 years, if we start doing it right today, what does the church look like? I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, when, when I look back at like the great revivals of history, um, it is so easy to be jealous of the amazing intimacy that they experienced with God. We look back and we think about the miracles, the signs and wonders, the crazy encounters, the deep faith, the way they laid their lives down without even a second thought. We are amazed by the way that they encountered God. But what we sometimes don't notice is the way they talked about those movements in their own personal journals. If you read the journals of the Christians who pioneered those movements, you see lonely men and women who were rejected by the church, who were forced to forge new paths alone until seemingly at some point overnight, God showed up and the church changed. Um, And I think right now we have thousands of Christians who feel alone, who feel broken, who feel forgotten, who feel rejected. The church is divided and pressing back against the calls for change. And and many people are discouraged. Um, and, and honestly, a lot of people don't even know how to put words to the, the things they're asking for. They don't even know how to say what they want from the church. But if I had to put my money somewhere, I put it on one of those suddenlies being right around the corner. Um, I don't know what it will look like. I, I don't know what names and faces will be remembered. Um, but I'm convinced that this is the moment before everything changes for the church. Um, and I think that one of the most important aspects that will change in my opinion is that there's going to be a shift um, where things stop being about production and platforms and ambition and they become about community and desperate love for God and humanity what that develops what develops from there I can't I can't speak to that because I genuinely believe that the body that Jesus is building is organic and that it moves organically so that entirely depends on who is in that movement on the voices that are present, on the bodies that are present, the gifts that are present. Um, but I do believe with all of my heart that it, that what we will see is that the church will become something that is more organic, that is more living, that is more fluid, um, and that is more desperately in love with humanity. And this is the really important part. I think we'll see a church that looks like Jesus because we haven't, in, at least in my lifetime. And I'm very, very excited for that, whatever it looks like. So for those of you out there who feel alone, who feel rejected, just know the heroes that you have in the faith, their journals all reflect that same thing. God showed up. I love that you're addressing the audience because the next question that I wanted to ask you is like, what, what message do you have for the people who are listening? Because I know there are some people who are tuning in because they've heard me speak about my issues, um, you know, and questions that I've had about my faith and my ups and downs, and they're here listening because they're also feeling very discouraged and lost. What is your message to them about how they can be a part of this sort of revolution of the church and finding the authentic church and their own authentic faith? I, w- I would say a couple of things. Um, first, I would say community is absolutely critical to what God is doing. Um, and for so many people, that's discouraging to hear because this feels like a very lonely journey. Um, but I would encourage you, um, this, is not a, this is not a fringe thing. Christians everywhere are asking these questions. There has never been one time where I have brought up one of these conversations in a group of people 
And everyone has looked at me and said, what are you talking about? They always say, wow, I didn't know someone else thought that. Or Mm -hmm. I can't believe you pointed that out. Or I never saw that. That makes sense. There are so many Christians that are ready for these conversations. And the only thing that's keeping us from having community with them is the fact that we haven't been bold enough to ask them yet. So my encouragement to you would be to fight for that community, to have those hard conversations, to ask those questions, to share your own wonderings. Um, And yeah, sometimes there is a cost for that. But there's also a price. Um, And the the second thing that I would really encourage you in um, is to make sure that you don't lose sight of what's coming. Um, like, Like I said a moment ago, every great revival was on the back of great hurt, Um, There is, I can't remember who said it, but there was a man who said that revival is paved in the blood of the saints um, and that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, Every great move of God has come with great hurt. Um, So don't allow this season of maybe feeling lonely, maybe feeling rejected, maybe actually being hurt. Don't allow it to break you in the sense that you forget that there is something that is coming because there is. Uh, So I just want to encourage you. Um, especially if you're hurt, especially if you're broken, especially if there is no one in your life that you can talk to, there is something coming. God has not forgotten you. Um, and I genuinely believe that we are not wasting our time. Hmm. Thank you. I, I sat here and listened to that with my eyes closed, actually, because that message, I think, was just as much for me as it was for everyone else who's listening. <laughs> that was wonderful. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Um, So, Michael, I know it's getting late. We're both parents. We're both going to be up early in the morning with kiddos. Um, Before we sign off here, could you just tell everyone how to get a hold of you again? You know, what your social media handles are, what your website and all like that, where they can get your books? Yeah, absolutely. I am on all social medias, but I will be honest with you. I am a I'm terrible at most of them. Um, I have a Twitter. I think I've put out three tweets, so don't bother. Um, but I am on TikTok, and my handle is Michael uh, underscore Laporte, I think. Yes. <laughs> okay. I think that's also my handle for Instagram. Those are the, the primary ones that I use. I do have a Facebook. Um, Facebook is filled with a lot of haters, so I don't, not, I don't spend a lot of time there. Um, and also, you can reach me on my website, michaellaborn.com. I do run my own website, so I, I do answer messages I get there. Um, so feel free to test me on that. Um, yeah. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on tonight. I know that it's late and uh, I just really appreciate you taking time to come and talk about this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. So everyone, that is it for today's podcast. Love you. Mean it always. And I'll see you in the next one.